Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the very first podcast episode of season three for the Death Dialogues Project podcast. So happy that you're here and thank you so much if you've been part of this journey, whether you've told your story before and are a listener or are just a listener. We're so happy that you're here with us. In the past two years, we've conducted 80 interviews And in the past year, it felt like the COVID pandemic just incited a podcast baby boom out there. And there's been so much content out there to listen to. I felt it was okay to move the shows to every two weeks. Since for the most part, our podcasts don't have an emergent timeline, that every two-week format has really worked. And I've even seen an increase in listeners. And as you've seen with our COVID little special episodes that we inserted, we still have the space to add something into that off week if need be. I continue to hear how moved and informed people are by hearing others' stories and how transformative sharing is for our storytellers. And that is the fuel that keeps this podcast rolling. Here in New Zealand, there's the saying of getting by by the smell of an oily rag. Well, this project doesn't even have an oily rag. And when I say we, (laughs) I'm lying. There is no we. It's just me. And I call myself a psychotherapist gone rogue because there's certainly a therapeutic transformation through this project. Um, But I have taken my licensed master's level professional hat off for this. Because one of the differences with this work is how I've been able to share my own experiences, which were, of course, the impetus of this project. And that you can read more about at the website, deathdialogues.net, if you're interested and you don't know about those stories. The more profound difference is meeting people personally in their experience, and the fact that I have made some really beautiful connections and friends through people sharing their stories. As you know, if you've experienced deep loss, if you keep your heart and mind wide open, it absolutely changes you. And sometimes the people in our lives just can't all really handle what we turn into. And through this project, I'm not bound by an oath to practice professional boundaries because the work depends on deep connection, and that is where deep transformation has come through this project. And I am so thrilled for the deep connections and friends I've made through this project. Today's guest, Margot Fox from Saltwater, is one of those people who has transformed my life. We have commonalities in our experiences and in the work spawned by those experiences. So I'm thrilled that she is who you are hearing from today as we celebrate the beginning of our third season of this podcast. Thanks for being here. In this episode, we hear the story of Jimmy, who died at the age of 21 after an eight-year odyssey of brain cancer. This episode shares so many poignant, informative, and beautiful messages as a mother tells her story of love and loss. Margot Fox created 
saltwater to provide a safe harbor for people grieving the death of someone they didn't think they could live without. Her goal is to create a community where grieving souls can support each other by sharing wisdom and ideas and offer hope about creating a life in the aftermath of a devastating loss. It is the website she couldn't find after her mom and her 21-year-old son Jimmy died. Saltwater is open to everyone regardless of what they believe, where they are in the grief process, and how they're feeling or what type of loss they've experienced. We welcome Margot today as she shares with us her journey with, as Ram Dass says, walking each other home as she did with her son, Jimmy. This is a beautifully moving story. It will be transformative for you, informational, as you think about when death may come to visit you or a loved one. And I know that you're going to be a better human for listening to this. Thanks for being here. Margo, thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast episode. I appreciate it so much. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Becky. I, I really love your podcast interviews, so I'm, I'm honored to be here. Lovely. Well, Margo, if you've heard the interviews before, you know, kind of how we roll. And that is, if it's okay with you, if you wouldn't mind just taking us through your story of loss. And, um, and then I know you've got an amazing project that I want to make sure that we talk about as well. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Cool. And let us know where you're at in the world too, for we have people around the world listening. Sure. So I am in a small town called Loomis, which is about 40 miles from Sacramento, California. And my loss story actually takes place partly in Portland, Oregon, which is where we were living um, during the time that our oldest child, my son, Jimmy, was diagnosed with brain cancer. Mm. Um, we were in we were living in Oregon and he was 13 and a half years old and had had been having a series of increasingly painful headaches over the course of a couple of weeks. And after some testing, the the doctor finally decided to do an MRI and discovered that he had a brain tumor and that's what was causing that. Um, So he had emergency surgery in January of 2006 and they removed the tumor and he looked to be one of those kids where he didn't appear to have any spread. And so he went through a year of what was considered, I think still is considered the standard treatment, which is six weeks of radiation to the brain and spine and nine rounds of chemotherapy. And he came out of that. And for a year, we thought he was cured and that he was going to be fine. And then a year after he finished treatment, something showed up on one of his quarterly MRIs. And we realized that he had, he'd recurred basically. And so he went through a really horrific year of treatment then uh, where he had to have five rounds of intense chemotherapy followed by a sixth round of really intense chemotherapy followed by a stem cell rescue. And then again, you know, we thought he was cured and then there was another spot. And it would sort of go like that for, you know, for several years. And then 
a year before he died, the scans got really bad and the cancer spread into his spine for the first time. We tried radiating his spine and brain again in an effort to hold it off and really nothing, nothing worked at that point. And he passed away on February 16th um, in 2014 after an eight year um, cancer odyssey. Oh, it does sound like an odyssey. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, and on the, the thing I will say though, is with his kind of brain cancer, medulloblastoma, when those kids recur, they usually die in three to six months. And Jimmy lived another six years after his cancer came back. And so I, you know, it, it shattered my life to lose him. And on the other hand, I am so grateful to have had those six years because he was pretty healthy for four of those six. And so we did a lot of living in those years that we wouldn't have had if he had died more quickly. So mm. I, I am grateful for that time that we had as a family. Because Jimmy also has a younger sister, Molly, who's four and a half years younger. Mm. And so our family got to spend a lot of, of well-lived time together that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. So what comes up for me to, is to ask you, and it's quite personal, but when you're going through this odyssey and even initially when you feel that the news has been really good, is, is, is there still part of your mom brain that just is, is worried about what's next? Or were you able to really be in that moment and just assume everything was okay? I was, it was different during different periods of time. I, I spent that first year absolutely convinced that Jimmy was going to be fine. Mm. That, that with good doctors and the right treatment and sheer will, I, we were going to get him cured. And then, of course, when, he w when the cancer came back, I was devastated. And so that shifted over to being hopeful. So I was, I was intensely hopeful that the next round of treatment would take care of it. And then when it, it didn't, and ultimately the, the first white spot showed up again on the scan, then I got hopeful that he could live with it like a, like a, a recurrent disease, um, but that it wouldn't kill him because it was growing so slowly. And I just kept trying to find ways to be hopeful. And I think what helped me was that that was how Jimmy's doctor, Dr. Nicholson, approached things and also how Jimmy approached things. I, I remember asking him once on a walk whether he worried about his quarterly scans. And he said, no. He said, I go into the meeting with Dr. Nicholson and we get the news. And if it's all good, then I put it out of my head for 90 days. And if it's not good, we make a decision about what to do. And I put it out of my head for 90 days. Mm. And I couldn't get there. But I think it really helped to have him live that way. And to also have Dr. Nicholson be so hopeful until the very end. Mm. Yeah, I can't imagine um, that journey with a with your son, with your child. And I know a lot of parents out there, and I'm sure many of our listeners will 
be listening because they have walked that path. Mm. It's a it's a world that I certainly didn't know existed until Jimmy was diagnosed. I mean, I I knew about kids here and there who who'd been diagnosed with cancer. You you I'd read about it. I really didn't understand it, it, that it existed in a way until we were mm-hmm. thrown into it. I remember that feeling of walking into the cancer treatment center. Well, and actually staying there um, for a period of time. It's a whole other world. It's a, it's a club you never want to be invited to, isn't it? Absolutely. The parents, the families, they really are. Yeah, it's a, it's a parallel universe. Mm-hmm. It is. So tell us about um, how throughout the time, it just sounds like Jimmy is one of, was one of those old souls to, to be able to articulate that he was handling that news in the way um, he did. Did he talk about death? We didn't talk about death until the very end. And I think it was something, I don't think he thought, I mean, I'm sure he was scared at times, but we didn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, His nurse practitioner, Shannon, used to say that he took his lead from us and, and we were relentlessly hopeful. I did a ton of research about medical treatments and worked really closely with the doctors. And so we were very active in all the decision making. And I just, I just was eternally hopeful that we would, he would live long enough for us to find something that would either hold it at bay or cure him. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, even if you come from a background of, uh, not being so medically oriented, it's really hard to tell with cancer, isn't it? When, you know, there is no sign that's held up that really says, um, until, until the end, you know, until you're very close to the end that absolutely not responding or will not turn around. You know, there, there's, there's a element of our, um, humanness that, that keeps us and the medical technology, the way it is, that keeps us ever hopeful, doesn't it? It does. It does. Um, we have a, a dear friend, Howard Klein, who is an expat who lives in Christchurch. And he was with us every step of the way on this journey. When, when Jimmy was diagnosed initially, he got on a plane and came to Portland for two weeks and helped us figure out which doctor, which treatment plan, et cetera. And he came again when Jimmy's cancer recurred and he was here when Jimmy was dying. And I remember once on a really dark moment you know, saying that how terribly worried I was. And he said, you know, Margo, there are some percentage of kids who survive this. Why not Jimmy? Right. And I just hung on to that always. That kind of became my mantra when we'd get a bad scan result. I would think, okay, there are kids that have survived this. Why not mine? Yes, yes. And I think um, you bring up a beautiful point, too, that if we could speak to our um, audience here about 
what I call what you describe your friend doing a, a medical advocate of sorts. And maybe all of us don't have a friend who's a medical doctor, but even having, when you're on a journey like this, having a person that can be a note taker during these extensive um, appointments and all of this information flying around, this can be a really invaluable service, can it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of my closest friends is a long-term survivor of metastatic breast cancer. And she put together a binder for herself really early on of her scan results and her test results and everything she needed to get second, third, fourth opinions. And right after I emailed her to tell her that Jimmy had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, she sent an email to me and said, look, I, I know it's early, but you need to know this. And she sent me a list of the test results and the other files that I needed to get for before we left the ICU when Jimmy was released and the kinds of questions to ask the doctor and how to figure out how to get a second opinion. That stuff is so invaluable because your brain is not working when someone you love has just been diagnosed with cancer. You need other people to help you navigate that. And we're not a society or culture that always feels comfortable asking for that help. Um, So, yeah, you're hearing it from a couple of people who've walked through um, the brain cancer journey to not be shy about that. There's just so much information. Exactly. And, And the thing is, too, to be fair to the doctors is that even the best doctors have so much they have to keep track of. That there were times when I would check in with a pediatric oncologist somewhere else in the country, and she would tell me about a clinical trial that was coming online, and and Dr. Nicholson might not have heard about it yet, not because he wasn't, it wasn't and isn't a fantastic doctor, but because there's so much for them to know and keep track of. So it mm. really helps to have a, a pool of doctors when you're dealing with a, a challenging form of cancer. And, and most of them are, frankly. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm wondering if you could take us into your family system a little bit. And I'm curious about um, Molly. What's going on with Molly during this time? So when Molly is, was nine... That's when Jimmy was initially diagnosed. And I will confess that the way we operated that year was to make sure she knew what was happening, but to mostly keep her away from things, to keep her busy and hanging out with friends and continuing with her activities. Because I thought during that year of treatment, we were going to be done and Jimmy was going to be fine and we'd go back to a normal life. When he recurred two years later after his initial diagnosis, so in 2008, I realized that she needed to know a lot more about what was happening and be a lot more active part of it. And so he had, um, to back up for a minute, when he was in the ICU recovering from his initial surgery, my husband really wanted to find a way to motivate him to, to bring his spirits up, but also to get him physically active because Dan felt it was really important that Jimmy regain his strength and his health if he was going to go through this treatment. So Dan signed him up 
for the 40 mile bike ride through the lit for the Livestrong challenge in Portland. And Jimmy decided he was going to do some fundraising for that because he liked the idea. And then he discovered that if you raised a certain amount of money, you got the chance to meet Lance Armstrong. And so he set as his fundraising goal, something like $20,000, which seemed insane to me because he was sending out emails to our friends and family and, and asking his teachers to contribute. And, but he managed to raise almost $30,000 that year. And so he got really active with Livestrong, um, in part because of the, you know, that opportunity initially to meet Lance, but more so because he found his people. And as a kid, you know, he didn't have peers who were going through cancer treatment. So he found himself hanging out with adults who understood what he was going through in a way that his peers didn't. And so the first two years, he fundraised by himself. But when his cancer came back in 2008, Molly started fundraising with him. And from then on, the two of them did it together. And it was a way for her to really feel part of what was happening in the family. And I think it was really, it was important for them and their relationship, but also for her too, because you can imagine being that young, it was probably pretty hard for her to understand this whole world that we were living in anyway. And, and that experience with Livestrong was kind of a path in for her too. That's beautiful. You couldn't have planned that any no. better. Mm-mm. Well done, Jimmy, to have that kind of connection over something that's, that um, actually sign you know, it, it illustrates the, the process, what he's going through, but it's not in the mire of it and lighthearted and wow, they had to work together. That's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah. 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 And, and I think too, you know, they were, they always bickered some, I mean, I don't think you can show me a set of siblings who, who don't, but I think it also helped them to really get close in a way they might not have at the ages that they were, because it typically comes later. I think when siblings kind of come back around and, and really bond as adults. Yeah. So it gave them a closeness and a time together they might not have had otherwise. Right, right. It's, yeah, I, I keep thinking like the play therapy that you do with kids, you know, you, you, you have to be so creative and find a way for connection, but they found it, they yeah. found it. And it was a, a, a activity filled time that they could be communing together. And yeah, and you're right. And developmentally, that's not always happening during those years. So as, um, as time goes on, and if it's not too painful for you, if you don't mind, you, can you tell us about when you knew things had changed? What what happened within the family then, and and what did those last days look like for you all? So I knew in late November of 2013 when Jimmy had a scan that we were going to lose him. I didn't know exactly when, but I knew based on how the way the cancer had spread that we weren't going to be able to stop it anymore. We'd run out of options. 
And at the, at the time, I don't think I even said anything to Dan. Uh, we tried a couple of, of non-chemo kind of options that didn't work and then made the decision, I think in January, to stop any sort of treatment at that point. And we had a, he had a scan in late January, which was significantly worse. And he was starting to get a number of symptoms that were, for the first time, were really cancer-related. The, the tumor growing and they were, he'd had some small changes with a little bit of neuropathy and some balance issues, but these were much more significant physical symptoms. And so Shannon, our nurse practitioner pulled me aside and said, you have to tell him he's dying because otherwise he's not going to get a chance to tell you what he wants to do with the time he has left. And as you can imagine, Becky, it was, it was really probably one of the worst moments of my life yeah. to have to do that. And I couldn't figure out how to bring it up. And then one night, um, Jimmy and I were sitting alone in the, in the room that he was staying and he was in the guest room cause he couldn't climb the stairs. And he, he asked me a question. We had had to, to do a catheter because of, of some challenges again, because of the cancer. And he made a comment about when I get the catheter out. And then he paused and he looked at me and he said, it's not coming out, is it? Mm. And I said, no. And I, and it was that moment that I told him he was going to die. And it was just, it, I mean, it was awful. You, you just, I, I don't even have words for how horrible it is to have to tell a 21-year-old kid, young man, that he's not going to live. But what came out of that was the most amazing two and a half weeks of our lives. Because what Jimmy did is he gave me a list of people that he wanted to see. And they were from all over the country. They included Howard, our friend in New Zealand. Um, it included Lance Armstrong, who he'd gotten oh to be God. close to. And I just had this moment of, oh my gosh, what if these people can't come? There's no notice. You know, we need them pretty much immediately. And every single one of them got on a plane. So Lance came from Texas for dinner one night, if you can imagine. Howard got on a plane and stayed for two weeks. Jimmy's friends from high school flew in from all over the country to spend a weekend with us. Dan's brother and sister came with their families. My mother came. It was this incredible two weeks of the people who loved him best in the house. And he created this ritual where he would hang out with them during the day. And then at night, it, whoever was there, he would, after he was in bed, that person would go in and say goodnight. And Jimmy would tell them how much he loved them. And so he really created just on his own, these moments where he made sure that everybody he loved best knew how much he loved them and why. And I think it was in one way, it was shattering to have those conversations. And on the other hand, I, I suspect that they're a gift that every one of those people will carry with them for the rest of their lives to have that kind of conversation with him. Oh, I'm so moved by this. This is, um, what a gift. Yeah. What a gift. And, and a gift that keeps on giving. What a gift for 
us to hear the capabilities, what can come out of actually having conversations surrounding death and bringing it out of the closet in those moments. Absolutely. And I just, I, you know, you said this earlier about Jimmy being an old soul. There, there are aspects of that kid that I just marvel at that at 21, he would just do this, you know, with no prompting. It wasn't like we said, well, Jimmy, you know, make sure you have conversations with everybody who's here. Right. He just, he just did it on his own. And yeah, it was, it was remarkable to have those. Yeah. This is what comes under a heading I made up. Maybe it's out there. Call, I call it full spectrum living, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the, the beauty and the horrible right there in front of you for those two and a half weeks. The, the, the absolute majesty of him being able to summon his people and the connection they're feeling and the real um, that they're experiencing together and that intense, intense love. I know that love. I know that I know that energy that fills a house in those moments, but also simultaneously the devastation that's happening. And and it's the devastation we tend as a culture to run from. So when we totally block that devastation out and, and try to avoid that devastation, we miss those other opportunities like Jimmy created. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, those, those conversations are, it's the both and, right? Like you said, they, they will rip your heart apart. And at the same time, they are what you hang on to after that loved one is gone is the, is the memory of them. And the fact that you had them, that you waded in to that really scary place. Um, Jimmy's nurse practitioner calls it walking into the dark with someone. Beautiful. And I, and I think that's, that's really true. And I'm forever grateful to her for so many things, but particularly for saying to me, you must tell him, you must. Because I think back now and I think that those two and a half weeks never would have happened because I would have kept my mouth shut he would have stayed hopeful. And then we would have hit a point where it was too late for him to have those conversations in that time with those people. And that's probably the typical scenario. And yes, that nurse practitioner, I bow to her because we all need somebody like that to help us during those times to facilitate that push forward of what next. And Again, you know, for people listening, and that's what this is all about. That's what this podcast is all about, is taking the bits that make sense to you for when and if you have to do that walk, or taking the bits that help you when you're walking with another person. And this is just a beautiful example. I mean, Jimmy created a living, quote unquote, you know, that word that we use, funeral for himself, for a celebration of his life. Um, yeah, it's so, so very powerful. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it, Becky. I, I love that. Yeah. Brilliant boy. I know. <laughs> he is. I do say so myself. <laughs> yes. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I am so moved. I'm, I'm, I'm verklempt really over here <laughs> up on this hill. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing that though. And, and so during this time, I mean, I, and because I, I'd like to hear, because you have the experience, you've got Molly four and a half years younger. Is she in the midst of this or is she withdrawing? How is she handling it? those last two and a half weeks. So she's in the middle of it. You know, she's, she's here. She's, she was mostly going to school. She was a junior in high school. So we left it up to her, but she chose mostly to go to school during the day and then would, you know, be here in the evening. And they too had their, their more than one actually final conversation because we thought we were going to lose Jimmy on a Friday night and she went in and they had a, a very emotional private conversation. And then he lived for another little over 24 hours longer. So I think they had another one as well. But but she was here, you know, in the middle of, of all of it. Um, it was a really, I mean, there's no good time, obviously. I was going to say that it was a bad time. God, there's no good time to lose a sibling. But she was, she is a softball player. And she'd been recruited to play college softball and so was in the midst of needing to both maintain her grades and also her softball performance and make sure that the during the summer after her junior year, she applied early as an athlete and needed to get admitted in order to go play softball in college. And so... Jimmy actually, the old soul that he that he was, was worried that she would let that go after he died because of how sad she was. And so one of the conversations he told me he was going to have with her and did was that he urged her to not let his death derail her dreams. Mm. And so that was one of the, I mean, that makes me cry, but it was one of the conversations they had was where he just said, you, you have worked so hard to make this happen and you need to keep going, even though I'm not here. And it's one of the many things that makes me so sad is that he was her biggest fan. He went to every one of her softball games that he could. And I know that when she was playing in college, those four years, he would have been there, you know, at every one of her games. And it makes me really sad that he didn't live long enough to be able to go. Mm. Maybe he was there. I know. I, I like to think that he was. <laughs> Along those lines, have you felt a sense of connection with him after his death? I do in weird sort of ways. Um, I'm not someone who grew up with an organized religion, so I don't have a conception of, of a heaven as some people do. Mm -hmm. um, but And my experiences have all been around birds as crazy as that may sound, but experiences where, you know, I'll be out on the driveway doing something and a hummingbird has come up to me more than once and come incredibly close to my face. And I feel like that's Jimmy just dropping in, mm -hmm. you know, and we, we also, we live out in the country, so we have a lot of vultures and we've, I've had some really strange experiences out walking the dog where I'll look up and they'll just be like a ring of vultures just sitting there, just looking at me. I think, oh, I wonder if this is Jimmy and maybe mom and dad and, you know, 
couple of his friends, I don't know, coming Ooh. in. And so there are just these oddities that happen sometimes where I feel like he's just dropping in to either say mm. hello or check in on me or something. Just from what I hear from people that that seem to have some sort of connection, because I'm 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 not uh yeah I don't put this into a any type of a religious basket or any doctrine. I I, I call it the great mystery, you know, because really we must all admit whatever's out there. If there's out if it's out there, you know, whatever happens, it's it's a mystery, and we will know. But but what I've heard repeatedly from people who who are claim to be or seem to be in the know is that that when when you're humming about doing your thing and then that is the thought that comes into your mind you know to to listen to that because it's one thing to be thinking about them already right and even that could be magic who knows you know that you're thinking about them and then the and then the bird does its little thing with you but but when something happens and at the same time they come to your mind that they're communicating. Yeah, that's what I, I've been told is step up and take notice of that. You know, that's not coming from nowhere. So exactly. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, what's interesting, Margot, is that this whole project started about getting conversations of death out of the closet because we just don't talk about those things. It's not polite or, you know, it's not, it's not um, socially acceptable that, but, but the secrets of the connection from the beyond are just as closeted. Those stories people are embarrassed to share. So that's why I always like to ask about it because I don't know. I may have had one person out of all of the people I've interviewed and I can't think of who that person would be, but I'm sure there's been somebody. But far and above, almost everyone will say, oh, yeah, this is what happens with me. Or, oh, yeah, this is what I've sensed. So it's a very common phenomenon that we just don't talk about. That's true. That's true. We don't. Mm. And and it is such a comfort. I agree with you. There have been several people that I've I've talked to who've said the same thing. It, you know, it's different things, as you know, for different people in the ways that people feel like their loved one is sending a sign of some sort, but they are so comforting. And yet we don't, maybe because it's not a doctrine or something more official, we feel funny sharing them with each other. Right. Right. And always the fear that what are people going to think about me? Right. You know, Oh, this is just too out there. But um, I will, while we're in this space, mention a, a beautiful book and it's called Hello from Heaven. And it was Elizabeth, you, everybody knows Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? Mm -hmm. The death and dying researcher who's, who's um, been deceased for quite some time. She had enlisted a husband and wife research team. And they put out calls to people who have felt like they've had connection. They call it ADC, After Death Communication, with someone. And it's a fascinating book. It's just all case studies. And there's so many commonalities and themes that they're chaptered by, and there, and there probably is one on birds, um, you know, music boxes, I remember, uh, the pennies and coins. And many of them have a sense of um, evidence behind them, and it's, it's quite, quite fascinating. And I know for doubting 
people. It's always nice to see a bit of research behind it. So that's a that's a lovely book to get your hands on. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I wrote the title down. I, I look forward to reading it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and, and then so I just wanted to finally ask, Jimmy, did he die at home? He did. He did. Another gift from Shannon, who basically said, you can do this. And I'll make sure she was in San Francisco, which is three hours, two and a half hours from here. But she made sure that we were set up appropriately with first a a long-term care nurse and social worker who then became Jimmy's hospice care team. And she just made sure we had what we need needed to take care of him because she said, if, if you go into the hospital, it's going to be beeping machines and constant welfare checks and temperatures and, you know, things like that. And so we were, we were able to keep him home and, and he passed away here, which was, which was another gift because we were with him in peace till the very end. And it was, it was the three of us plus our dear friend Renee, um, plus Jimmy's nurse and and social worker, who by then had become good friends and still are. And so we just, we stayed with him in the room and listened to Bob Marley and talked and, and sat with him until the end. Mm. And what would you say to people about that, that have children or or anyone and are given that choice? It's incredibly hard, and yet it's so worth it to to not have to rush and to not feel like there's some medical process that has to take place, to be able to wait to call the funeral home until we were ready, to have Alicia and Asia be the ones to bathe Jimmy and put on the clothes that we chose and be part of that with us. It was such a it was such a more peaceful way, I think, for him to leave and for us to be part of it. So I I think it's as painful as it is. I I can't imagine doing it any other way. It's certainly when you're in the moment, it certainly feels the natural choice, doesn't it? And you you can't know that if you've not been exposed to it. But especially, I imagine as a parent um, that you and and I'm I'm just so thrilled to hear you say that you waited to call the funeral home and you had some time. Yeah, yeah, I know you did too. And it's it's I made so when my mom passed away, I was with her, and I made the mistake. We didn't have hospice because she died very quickly and unexpectedly. And I made the mistake of calling too quickly. And I had to call the non-emergency number for the police department because we didn't have hospice. What a nightmare. I mean, they came barreling in the house. One of the young firefighters wanted to revive her. It was, even though she had a do not resuscitate order, it was such a nightmare. And it happened a year after Jimmy. So I'd already had the other experience. But it was, it was one of those moments where in the midst of this mess, I thought, oh, thank God we didn't have to go through this with Jimmy and compound it. We had hospice. We had all the medication that we needed to keep him comfortable. We could take our time. 
And it was almost like the, the, the lesson from the universe saying, yeah, you know, this is, this is how you don't do it. And here's why you don't do it this way, because it just adds to the pain of the loss. And, you know, the professionals always have to remind me, and you're bringing that up, it's not always possible in an unexpected death to take that pause, right? And that sounds like what you're talking about, what happened with your mother to a degree. I'm not sure what her condition was, but, but you know, it's one thing when we know somebody, when, we, when it's actually happening before our eyes, the death is unfolding before our eyes, we have a moment to look at how we're going to handle things. But with unexpected deaths, um, sometimes it's different depending on the age of the person and the surrounding circumstances. Sometimes you have no choice but to dial the emergency number. I, I do need to put that disclaimer in there because sometimes I think I get so overzealous about the whole idea of um, that being some very tender time right after a person dies, when you know they're, they're dying. Um, and um, as I, Zenith Virago, the Death Walker uh, weekend I spent with her, her in her Australian accent, was when the, when the person dies, that's your signal. Rather than go to the phone, make a cup of tea <laughs> and, you know, regroup. Mm-hmm. Um, and interesting, Margo, I, we actually did a like a plan, a death planning workshop here. And just to know with your response to your, to your mother, or just for people out there with your human responses, everybody, and even in my death walker training, every, there were many, many people who assumed no matter what the circumstances were, when a person died, you called emergency services immediately, you know, we're just so trained. It's so embedded. They really had to unlearn that. And, and of course, when you unpack it like you have for us with Jimmy, oh, it makes perfect sense. You can take that time. And the beauty of you, you took care of his body and you picked out the clothes. Oh, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right. And so much easier to do at home, right? If we'd been in the hospital, I wouldn't have thought to bring an outfit with me. It wouldn't even cross my mind. But when, and I don't remember the point, I think it was after he died. It might've been right before, but either way we were there, right? So it was very simple to go up to his room and the, you know, and agree on what we thought the right clothes were. So it's little things like that too, that, that just aren't possible when you're in the hospital. Yes. And more hospitals are because of us having these conversations and people being more liter- about, literate about it when they go in, mo- more hospitals are making space for spending a little bit more time and taking some ownership like that. So for listeners, don't let that, um, if a person can't be out of the hospital, there's still ways you can personalize the end of life experience in that setting and get those people on your team, get that medical Um, the medical personnel on your team for that. Absolutely. So Margo, tell us about your beautiful, beautiful project and how that came to be. So after um, Jimmy died, and then as I mentioned a few minutes ago, my mom died the following year, 
I was reading everything I could get my hands on and looking for websites and just, you know, like so many of your guests have talked about, Becky, looking for stories and comfort and trying to get rid of the feeling like I was alone in all this. And I really struggled to find a website that spoke to me because I'm, as I mentioned, I'm not of a particular religious background. And so phrases like, you know, Jimmy's in heaven and you'll see him again, don't offer any comfort for me. And so I wanted something where it was really open to people without judgment. Because the other thing I found was that there's a lot of judgment in grief. There's a lot of hierarchy and ranking. And so when, when Jimmy died, there, there really, there's no one who would say, oh, you know, it was just your kid. Of course, everyone understands the magnitude. But in my mom's case, my mom was 92. And so she had had a long, full, lovely life. But at the same time, she wasn't ready to go yet. And she was, she was so devastated to leave me grieving the death of my son. And so her loss was really, really painful because of the timing and the fact that she didn't want to die. And yet I would have people say to me, oh, but she had such a long, full life. And that wasn't comforting to me. And what it taught me was that every loss is completely different. And I wanted some, and I wanted a space where there was room for all of it, regardless of type of loss. And the other piece that I, that I found too, which didn't speak to me is a lot of these websites have articles or podcasts or resources that talk about all the things that you're not supposed to say to someone who's lost a child in this case. And the problem with that is, is that if I gave you a list of five things that you shouldn't say to me as a grieving parent, all you would be able to think about are the five things that I'm telling you not to say. And it would be really hard to come up with what you should say or could say instead of that. And so what I read over and over again is that people would have these lists and then they would complain that their friends and family were walking away from them. And I thought to myself, well, but that makes sense because they don't know how to support you. You're only telling them what not to do. And eventually I, I couldn't find what I was looking for. And then my dear friend, Regina Ellis, who runs Children's Cancer Association in Portland, texted me one day and said, hey, I've got a mom whose son just died and she's looking for resources and she's like us. She's not religious. And I know that you have lots of files, so can you send me a packet of things? And I texted her back and I said, I really don't have anything to send you. And she texted me back and said, well, then you'd better start writing. Mm. And it was literally in that moment where Saltwater was born because I thought, all right, maybe I better just put up or shut up. And so... I created Saltwater and I started initially um, with the plan of having it be for five types of loss, um, child, parent, spouse, sibling, and friend. And then over time, as more people have connected to it, I've added pages of resources and blog posts about pet loss, uh, loss to dementia, loss to drug overdose, and loss to suicide. 
because I, I, I'm learning all the time again and again how different every form of loss is. And that even if it's the same family member, depending on how they die or what they die of, it can make it a completely different experience for someone. And then the other thing that Saltwater's had from the beginning is it has a page of resources for those who love us on how to support us. What kinds of things can you say? What can you do that grieving people find helpful? What I love about it is, I mean, we're sisters, really, Margot, because <laughs> what you're doing is this, our same premise is we learn from each other's stories mm-hmm. more than anything. Right. Yeah. Right. We do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because as you know, Becky, there, there are aspects of every loss that are hard to talk about, right? Regrets that we have, things we didn't say to our loved one before they died, or choices that we made, or the time that we got cranky and said something, you know, or ways that we feel like we made a mistake or let the person down. And it helps so much to have another person tell their story and and think, oh, me too. I did that too. So I just think there's so much healing in in hearing each other's stories. And then the other beautiful outgrowth that comes from that is I'll have people reach out to me who've had a particular kind of loss, and then I'm able to connect them to someone on saltwater so they can actually speak directly to another person who's had a similar kind of loss. Beautiful, beautiful. So it's formed a sense of community in some ways as well. And I know you are on Facebook as well, right? Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Although Instagram and Facebook are, are bigger communities for saltwater than Twitter is. And the um, actual website is just beautiful, eloquent article or after article that I found. When is there any more? And and like you say, you have resources, but I I just imagine all the people I've talked to, Margot, who've experienced a loss and say much what you did. Like I just looked and looked and looked and, you know, sometimes that's at two or three in the morning when you can't, um, you can't, you can't sleep. And, um, somewhere in your name of your project, oh, safe Harbor. And I think, gosh, if I landed on that and I just needed to know that I wasn't alone and I just maybe wanted to know how did other people do this? What a beautiful place to land during that space. Thank you. Because it's actually very pleasing to look at as well. You know, there's just a vibration about it that, yeah, I think you've recreated um, a beautiful, beautiful service for people out there. Thanks. Suffering grief and loss. That, that was important to me as well, because as I'm sure you've also seen, there's some wonderful sites out there, but even the best ones sometimes are very busy. And it's hard to find what you're looking for. And then, you know, there are a lot of ads or pop-up windows or, you know, people are are wanting to raise money, which is fine. I I understand that they're running it, their grief website or as as a nonprofit or, but again, when you're up at two in the morning and you're looking for resources, that gets in your way of finding things. And so saltwater for me is a labor of love. I don't, I don't solicit money. There's no ads. There's no pop-ups. If you want to subscribe to the newsletter, you have to 
subscribe to the newsletter. It's not going to pop up in the middle of your trying to read an article. And that was really important to me too, because I wanted people who were in pain to land on the site and let their breath out and not be interrupted by anything. Thank you for your generous conversation today and taking us and letting us get to know your precious Jimmy and family. That's, it's really moved me. Oh, thank you, Becky. Well, as I, as I told you, I really love your podcast because you are such a generous spirit yourself. And the, the conversations you have are just a gift because you're really allowing people to share their stories. And that's, as, as you know, that's what we all crave and connect to. And you, mm. you know, you too are, are doing this as a labor of love. It's a gift to the world. And so I was just so honored and, and happy to be part of it. Thank you so much. And I know that our listeners will be better for listening to this story for sure. Oh, well, take good care, Margo. Yeah, you too, Becky. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook on Instagram and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.